Thank you so much for that good singing. What a blessing to sing together as a church family, that great hymn. Thank you, Jake and Emily, for your help with the music this morning. John 21, John 21, we come to this final chapter in this great book, this Gospel of John, and it has been a joy and a privilege to preach through this book, and I don't know, again, if we'll be able to finish the chapter, but uh, we do want to look at this final chapter and an expository way, an expository fashion, and see how God, through His Son Jesus Christ, restores a believer. We begin in verse number 1 of John 21. After these things, Jesus showed Himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and on this wise showed He Himself. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus, and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples. Simon Peter saith unto him, I go a-fishing. And we'll stop there as we begin this morning. I know that for some of uh, you as men, or maybe even as ladies, uh, you have often said, I go a-fishing. That is something that you enjoy. And it's a great passion of yours, and a hobby, and something you like to do in your pastime, and in your free time, and I know that there are uh, some who really enjoy fishing. I enjoy it in a recreational kind of way, just once in a while going out and and fishing. But for Peter and for uh, some of the apostles like him, fishing was their trade. That that was their their means. That's what they had done uh, prior to Christ calling them as his apostles. And now... Jesus has appeared to them twice already in the upper room, once without Thomas and then the second time with Thomas. In Matthew 28, in verse 16, we know that the disciples had been commanded to meet Christ in Galilee. So in obedience, they went to Galilee. And they were there, of course, Galilee being near the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias, Lake Gennesaret, as it is also known. They're a major geographical uh, points there in the land of Palestine, in the northern region of Palestine. And some have criticized Peter. Uh, some have, have said, well, Peter was, was giving up on the ministry. Uh, Peter was discouraged. And so Peter just decided to take the other disciples and uh, these six others and, and, and just go fishing. I, I think that that's a little bit unfounded. I don't, I don't want to be overly dog, dogmatic about this, but I, I also don't want to be overly negative toward Peter. Uh, there could be several different reasons for Peter going fishing. Uh, I think some have been a little bit too critical of him and maybe been a little pious in, in saying, well, Peter and the apostles, they, they should have been on their knees praying and fasting. Well, maybe they did a fair amount of praying and, and fasting. Uh, I, I don't know exactly all they did in, and the exact amount of time, but they were in obedience to Christ. They had gone to Galilee, and they were waiting for Christ to come, and they didn't know exactly when and how He was going to appear. He had appeared suddenly to them in the upper room on two occasions. They were encouraged by that. Jesus had reassured them and had pledged to them once again the Holy Spirit who would come in His fullness In just a short time, in Acts chapter 2, as Peter would preach and the Holy Spirit would would come and and dwell believers there in Acts 2. And Christ had promised the Holy Spirit in John 14 and 15. 
he makes this pledge and he gives them this reassurance in John 20. And now he has them in a holding pattern, in a, a, a waiting time. And most of us are impatient people. I'll have to admit, I'm not the most patient person. I like to say I'm more patient than some people, but, but patience is something that's a lifelong journey, isn't it? It's a lifelong lesson. I'm not the type that as soon as the light turns green, I honk my horn if someone doesn't go right away. But some of you have been in front of people like that. As soon as the light turns green, they're honking on the horn, beeping at you. Patience is a struggle, especially uh, sometimes in heavy traffic or when you're in a, in a hurry. And doesn't it seem like whenever you forget something back home and you have to go back and get it, you get behind the slowest driver? We don't like waiting in line. We are in a convenience world and 30 seconds and we have something heated up in the microwave, three-minute meals, all the different ways in which we speed things up, all the modern conveniences. Patience is a struggle for us. And I can't help but think that maybe Peter had a little bit of impatience. Yes, that's possible. But, but I want us to think about this for a minute. That Again, Peter was a fisherman. He had been commanded to go to Galilee along with the other apostles. He went there in obedience and there was apparently some downtime. He didn't know when Christ was going to come. What did he know? What did he do for a living prior to being called as an apostle? It was being a fisherman. Maybe he had some unpaid bills. Maybe he wanted to provide for his family. We don't know exactly why. I don't think that it's a negative thing necessarily for us to suppose about Peter. He had been a fisherman. This was the way he had made a living. Maybe he had to make some money to help support his family. Or maybe Peter just wanted to stay busy. Peter strikes me as someone who was not an idle person, not someone to waste time. Uh, some of us maybe are, are really good at sitting around and, and doing nothing. Uh, some of us, we can't stand having any downtime. Got to be moving, got to be going, got to be doing something. And that can be a, a strength, it can be a weakness. And, and, and sometimes we are too busy, and sometimes I think that we, we go the other way, and we have a laziness that's even kind of inbred in our culture to some degree because of all the conveniences and all the entertainment options that we have. I think many times our culture leans the wrong way, and we become lazy, and we're not having a, and developing a good work ethic. But I believe Peter was a strong worker, a good worker. I think he had a good work ethic. And I think we'll see that even in, in the book of Acts in, verse, in chapters 1 through 12 where Peter worked hard in the ministry and preached faithfully and served and evangelized. I think Peter was a hardworking man. So a little bit of downtime, he goes to what he's comfortable with, what he's familiar with, maybe having to help support his family, but nevertheless to stay busy, to get busy working, uh, to, to not just sit around and do nothing. He was also likely waiting for his next command from the Lord as to what he should do next in the ministry. I want to give Peter the credit of waiting on the Lord to know what the next step in the ministry that God had for Peter. And no doubt he was struggling with that. Was he even useful in the ministry anymore? Had he failed his Lord to the point that he would no longer be able to function in the ministry. He had gone out and wept bitterly after denying Christ three times. Prior to that, Peter had been the one saying, I'm going to stand up for you, Lord. 
He had even pulled out his sword and cut off the servant's ear. Now Peter is no doubt suffering from some guilt and some shame. Though he had repented and though we know Christ had forgiven him, there was still this restoration that needed to take place. And Peter was probably struggling a little bit, as all of us would, after failing our Lord, after failing our Savior, and we've been there. I know I have been there. Lord, I have failed you. Do you have any use for me anymore? And I would venture to guess that all of us at some point have had similar thoughts. Lord, I've messed up. Lord, I have failed. I've made mistakes. I've sinned against you. And even after we have gone out and wept bitterly and repented as Peter, we have questioned whether or not there was any way that God could still use us. Peter had not disqualified himself from the ministry. There are qualifications for the pastor and deacon that are very clear in Scripture. Peter had not disqualified himself from the ministry, but there was probably some personal struggles, personal struggles about whether he would be useful for the Lord in the ministry anymore. He was waiting for Christ to give him his next orders to tell him what to do. He wanted to stay busy. He had work to do. He wasn't going to sit around. He knew fishing. He goes out and he fishes into the night. And we read here in John 21 that there were six disciples that followed him. Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, the sons uh, probably of uh, Salome, who was the mother of James and John, who was there at the cross observing Jesus, along with the, uh, the other uh, three women that were specifically named that we looked at uh, in the book of John. So James and John are there, Thomas, Nathaniel, and two other disciples that are not named here in chapter 21 and verse 2. What, what does that say about Peter? It says that he had leadership. He still had influence. They weren't heaping on him, oh, you are the one who denied Christ three times. No, they still saw in Peter his leadership, his influence, his desire for the Lord. They, I don't know how much they had shared amongst one another and how much they knew, but they, they knew that Peter was broken and contrite before God, was humble, and when he and they together went in obedience to Christ's command to Galilee and Peter decided to go fishing, those other six disciples, seven of them total, they were there with Peter. He still had influence. He still had leadership. We see that. And we'll see that, uh, or we know that even more if we were to take the time to go through Acts 1 through 12 and see Peter's leadership in the early church. But notice now in verse 3, they say unto him, We also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. And I don't know about you, but there have been times, some of you are really good fishermen or fisherwomen, and you've caught some fish, but you've been out there at times where you couldn't catch a thing. I'll have to admit, I've probably had more times where I caught nothing than times where I caught something. But this was their job. This is their profession in a sense. They were professional fishermen, and they caught nothing. Verse 4, but when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. 
I want us to see, first of all, in this passage that, that, that Christ, that Jesus, Christ Jesus reassures us, specifically in this context, in chapter 21, his apostles, his disciples, reassures them of his presence. They looked out from the boat. They're out in the Sea of Galilee. They look back in the morning as the sunrise is coming up, as the light is now beginning to come across the horizon. They look toward the shore, and in verse 4, they see Jesus, but they knew not that it was him, that it was Jesus. At first, they did not recognize him. In the morning lights, obviously not expecting Jesus to be on the shore, though they had obeyed and he had promised to come to them at some point. They were not expecting him, maybe, like the road to Emmaus, the, to Emmaus, the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Maybe Jesus had kept them from recognizing him. We don't know for sure. But in the early morning light, from the boat out in the water, maybe not expecting to see Jesus in quite that way, they did not recognize him. But then we see here in verse number 5, Then Jesus saith unto them, Children, have ye any meat? They answered him, No. So I can imagine Jesus calling out, Children, have you any meat? Have you caught any fish? Do you have a net full of fish to bring in? They answered, No. Verse 6, And he said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved, we know that's John, saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. So they cast the net on the other side. Immediately the fish, the net, excuse me, is full of fish. And immediately John recognizes that this is supernatural. This is Jesus. The light bulb comes on. He recognizes it is the Lord. There was an instantaneous, a miraculous, a supernatural act of taking that net, casting it on the other side, simply obeying the Lord in that waiting moment. And God performs a miracle and their net is full of fish. Again, as we wait on the Lord, as we obey and we wait. In times where we don't have immediate explanations and answers, we trust. We obey. We stay faithful. We don't go and do our own thing and go our own way. We stay busy in a good work. Peter was doing still a good work, going out and fishing, Providing maybe for his family, providing food that they needed, maybe going to sell some of that. I don't, again, I don't want to be critical of Peter. There's nothing here that indicates that he was wrong for going fishing, though some have tried to make this a negative. I really don't want it to be that way at all. Peter was waiting on the Lord and he stayed busy and he did something that was constructive in his time of waiting, trusting that Christ was going to come. And in doing that... The Lord appeared on the shore, told them to cast the net on the other side, and they caught 153 fish. Now, I don't know, again, some of you as fishermen, you may have gone out and caught 153 in a day. You may have slayed them, or however the saying goes, uh, as you go out. And we had a really good time. I was living in, we were living in Terre Haute, and there was a man in our church who was an avid fisherman, and there's a little, I don't know what it's called, some sort of preserve um, there along I-70, you can see it off of I-70, and we went out 
And I mean, those crappie and those bluegill, they were just feasting on anything and everything that we threw in the water that day. And we just knew sooner would that hook hit the water, boom, they were on that. And I don't know, we may have caught 30, 40 bluegill um, crappie that, that, that day, and we had a, a fish fry that night at, at this church member's house. That was one of the best days I can remember fishing. I've caught a few bass here and there and had some fun. But 153, we read that it was 153 fish. It, there, there were, there, it was so quick and there were so many that John exclaimed there that it is the Lord. And we come down in verse number 6. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. It was easily recognized that this was miraculous. This was supernatural. This was a great big amount of fish in just a short amount of time when they had caught nothing all night. And we come down to verse 7. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girt his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked. He didn't have his outer coat on, being out there fishing. And he did cast himself into the sea. Okay? Again, not trying to get a negative at all about Peter, but he had that outer robe taken off. He put that on. He jumps into the sea. Different commentators say different things, but basically Peter was eager to see the Lord. He threw on his outer robe, his outer tunic, and he jumped into the water. No doubt there was a need to pull the net in. But also, he was eager to see the Lord. Some have said that he jumped into the water to avoid seeing Christ. But he's there in just a, a, a short time. We see him right there at the, the fire, eating the meal with them. Jesus asking him questions. So it wasn't like Peter was trying to swim away and get away. It seems that he put that robe on, that tunic, helped get the net in, and was there to meet Jesus. I don't see in here any reason to be critical of Peter. But also notice the miraculous nature of this catch in verse 11 where it says 153 fish for all there were so many yet was not the net broken. As a fisherman it was very very common to have to repair nets. Now again I'm not an avid fisherman but I've had to do my fair share of repairing broken lines. And isn't it aggravating when you bought a nice lure and you get it caught on something and you can't retrieve it and you have to break the line or you have to reach. I, that was one of the things that frustrated me about fishing was having to replace the hook, replace the line, restring the line. I remember my dad one time taking a bunch of us boys out fishing and I, I felt so, I mean, I've never seen my dad so patient in all my life. My dad was not a particularly patient man. That day, he was the most patient man I can ever imagine because there were about five or six of us boys out at Eagle Creek Reservoir fishing, and we were constantly getting our lines crossed, losing our bait, breaking our lines. And my poor dad, I don't know, he didn't, I don't think he fished the whole time we were there. All he did was just replace hooks and replace bait and restring line. Their nets were, bro were not broken. The net was not broken. This was a miraculous thing, 153 fish immediately after casting the net on the other side and their nets were not broken and I'm sure there, were, there, were, there was relief among the fishermen there, the disciples. We don't even have to fix the net. It was all part of the miraculous supernatural work as Christ was reassuring them of his presence and of his power and of his provision. Christ was reassuring 
the disciples, as He reassures us as believers so many times, in the times of our waiting, in the times of our discouragement, in the times of our sorrow, in the times of questioning, He reassures us with His presence in the work of the Holy Spirit and the comforts and as our guide. And as we come to church and we gather with believers and we sing praises to His name and as we maybe receive a card or a phone call or a text or as we just simply take time in our times of waiting in reading and claiming the Scripture and meditating upon the promises of God's Word, He reassures us of His presence, that He's there with us, that He will not leave us nor forsake us. And He reassures us with His power and with His provision. Very gently, very carefully, very compassionately, Jesus does what? He provides a simple meal as he had done so many times before. We come down to verse 8, And the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from the land, but as it were two hundred cubits, dragging the net with fishes. As soon then as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid thereon, and bread. Jesus saith unto them, Bring of the fish which ye have now caught. So they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid thereon, and bread. And Jesus saith unto them, Bring of the fish which ye have now caught. In his provision, he provides above and beyond. 153 fish, and when they get to the shore, Christ has already prepared a meal. Do we, do we realize, do we, do we understand? It, it took me a little bit of time, even though I've taught through this passage uh, before, it took me a little bit of time to, to really grasp this once again and to realize once again, Christ had prepared a meal for them by the time they arrived on shore, and it appears that it was a miraculously provided meal. It was a miracle of God. Not just a large catch of fish, but also it appears that this meal was provided instantaneously. He had the fish, he had the bread there, and then they brought the other large catch. It appears that Christ had miraculously provided for them, for that small meal, that breakfast there that morning. Reassuring them again of his power, of his provision. It reminds us a little bit of John 6 where Jesus fed the multitudes with the little boy's lunch. It's a similar miracle even to what Jesus did in Luke Luke chapter number 5. I'm sure as the disciples were sitting there, as they saw Jesus, as they began to eat their breakfast, the fish and the bread, I'm sure there were some of these things that came back into mind. John chapter 6, and the multitudes, and the little boy's lunch. And he did that twice, the 5,000 and the 4,000, which we know there were more than five and more than 4,000 that day, because there were also women and children. But also, in Luke chapter 5, where Jesus had told them to cast their nets into the deep water, Go out in faith and cast your nets in the deep water. They had just cast their nets on the other side. And as Jesus had provided for them in Luke 5 in the deep water, he had provided for them in the same water, but on the other side of the ship. And again, he was reassuring them of his power and his provision and with his presence. We see this compassion, this love of our Lord. 
that he cared for them in their time of need, in their time of questioning, in their time of wondering and waiting. And again, to reiterate this lesson that we all have to repeatedly learn and exercise in faith, trusting God and waiting on the Lord and not having to have an immediate explanation for every little thing that happens. And though we have questions, it doesn't come from a heart of disrespect. It doesn't come from a heart of bitterness and anger. But like Job, we say, Lord, we don't understand. Job, we don't, as Job cried out to the Lord and he didn't understand, he didn't know why. And how all of these bad things could happen to someone who was such a good person, when really the question ought to be asked, why do good things happen to bad people? Because all of us are sinners, we're all bad. So why does anything good happen to us when what we deserve is hell? Even on our worst day, we still get better than what we deserve. The fact that I could even with my family get on an airplane and fly, I don't know how many hundreds of miles, and then turn around five days later and get on an airplane and fly back, I mean, that's just like normal. But that's exceptional that 150 years ago, the thought of doing that was no way. And we take for granted so many things and we're so spoiled and we forget how good God is and how compassionate and how caring and how loving and how he heaps blessing on us above, exceedingly, abundantly above all that we can ask or think. A simple meal on that morning was a reassurance. And if I can say this as well, with all respects, It's the best meal as well because it's breakfast. Breakfast is the best meal of the day. He provided the best meal. Fish and bread on on the shore for breakfast. Now we think of bacon and eggs and sausage and and grits and and, and the things like what we had at the men's breakfast a week ago Saturday. But this was one of the best breakfasts they had ever had. Their Savior, their Lord had appeared there with them. He had miraculously provided a catch of fish and then he was there and reassuring them of his presence, his power, and his provision. And then it appears, from what we see there, that Jesus had even partaken of the meal with them. Verse 13, Jesus then cometh and taketh bread and giveth them and fish likewise. It appears then, in verse 15, so when they had dined, that Jesus even partook of the meal. So even in his glorified body, where they had seen the scars in his side, his feet, and his hands, he also apparently in his glorified state, in his glorified body, was able to eat, partake of food. We don't have time to go to 1 Corinthians 15 and go through all of the details in 1 Corinthians 15 about the incorruptible body versus the corruptible body, but the glorified body that Jesus had. Post-resurrection, before he ascended up into glory, into heaven, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God, where he intercedes for us, he had the scars. It, It appears that he was able to eat the food. So, similarly, we will have a glorified body upon the rapture, the resurrection. When we are, once again, our physical body is united with our soul, our spirit, Absent from the body, present with the Lord, they are reunited at the resurrection. And 1 Corinthians 15 describes the 
corruption putting on incorruption. And that gives us a little bit of an idea of what a glorified body will be like. Transfigured, the Mount of Transfiguration. There was a recognition of Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. They hadn't seen those other two great men, but they recognized them. It wasn't like in, at the Mount of Transfiguration, they, they, they pulled out their iPhone and went through their photos and said, oh yeah, there's, there's Moses and there's Elijah. They hadn't seen them, but they recognized them. There was a revelation, obviously, of God, a divine revelation, but they saw a physical body. We see Jesus, a physical body in a glorified state with scars visible and apparently some measure of eat, eating and, and drinking. So in heaven, in our glorified state, we're going to enjoy the tree of life. There's going to be the best meals that we have ever eaten, far better than anything that we can imagine here on earth, the best beverages that we can imagine, far better than anything here on, on this earth. There's going to be, we see a little bit of a sample of heaven in a sense, a little bit of a look into what our glorified body will be like, and it will be sinless. When we go into glory, on that resurrection day, there will be that glorified body in the presence of sin will be gone there will no longer be the flesh though it is dead now we still give it influence and we become a servant sadly to our flesh and the spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak but we have to deny our flesh we have to take up our cross and follow him we are warned in romans about being servants of unrighteousness in the glorified state, in our glorified bodies, in the presence of the Lord, we will no longer have the flesh. We'll no longer have the presence of sin. We'll be able to have perfect fellowship with God and with other believers. What a glorious day that will be. And we see just a glimpse of that here in Jesus' glorified body. So we see Christ provided reassurance, but then also we see that Christ provides restoration. We come down now to verse 15. So when they had dying, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? Jesus, excuse me, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, feed my lambs. He said, saith to him again the second time, verse 16, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. Jesus restores a believer. He questions him with, the word for love, agape, two times. The first two questions when Jesus says, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? That word for love there is the supreme highest form of love, agape. He says to Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, agape thou me? Do you love me with the highest, the holiest, the most supreme kind of love? And literally, it's in the present tense. Are you loving me with the highest, most supreme, holiest kind of love? The purest kind of love. And Peter responds, 
Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. But he uses the word phileo. That word for love is an affectionate love, a love of family, a brotherly love. We know the word Philadelphia from this word. Jesus again asks him, Simon, son of Jonas, agape thou me? There in verse 16, the second time, he uses again the word agape, the highest, holiest, supreme form of love. And Peter responds, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I phileo thee. Again, all Peter can respond with is, Jesus, I have an affectionate love for you, a family love, a brotherly love. Jesus is leading Peter to a place of full restoration. He's testing Peter's hearts. He's causing Peter to evaluate his life, and he's restoring him. He says in verse 15, feed my lambs. The only time that we see the word lambs used in the New Testament, this word, this Greek word for lambs. Speaking of the tenderest, the youngest sheep. Speaking of the fact that already as he's restoring Peter, as Peter's struggling with confessing an agape love, what is Jesus already saying to Peter? Peter, I want to use you. Peter, there are young believers out there. There are people who are going to need your ministry, you are going to be used of the Lord in the preaching and teaching and the evangelism in the call that I have upon your life. I want to use you, Peter. You are struggling with your confession of your agape love for me, but I love you with an agape love, and I want to use you. I have a job for you. I have a service for you. I have a ministry for you. Feed my lambs. He says in verse 16, feed my sheep. And then verse 17, he saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, phileo thou me? Now, Jesus, in the third question, he uses the word phileo. And Peter was grieved. He knew now what Jesus was saying. He's saying to Peter, I know you're struggling with your confession of your love, I know that you have failed me, but I know you have gone out and repented of your sins. You have wept bitterly. Will you at least confess a phileo love for me? And Peter was grieved because he had said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. You know my heart, Lord. You know I'm struggling. You know I have failed you. You know that this is the umpteenth time I have come and confessed this sin. You know, Lord, how hard it has been for me to remain faithful. But, Lord, I want to be faithful. I want to love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, Lord, I have failed you too many times. But, Lord, you know, you know my heart. You know all things. You know that I phileo you. If only I could once again come to that agape, if I could just rise to that agape, the sense of Peter's heart comes out as he answers the Lord. You know my heart. And Christ had Peter right where he wanted him to restore him, to bring him back into a place where he could say to Peter, feed my sheep. I have a ministry for you. I want to use you. 
he compassionately, caringly, lovingly calls Peter back into right fellowship. And he says, Peter, I want to give you my power and my strength. And by my grace, I want you to go forth and I want you to feed my sheep from the youngest to the oldest. I want you to instruct them in the ways of God. I want you to make disciples of all nations. I want you to preach. I want you to stand up for what is right. I want you to go forth with the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ that I have prepared you for and called you to. And I want to use you. And we may not be a Peter in the office of the apostle. But God wants to use each and every one of his children. All of us. We may feel like we only have one talent. or We may only have two or three or five. But whatever we have, if we'll submit it to the Lord, if we'll say, Lord, I love you. Do with me whatever you want. I surrender all. Then God can take even the little bit that we have, even a little lad with five loaves and two fish. He took that little lunch and he fed multitudes. And in a way, isn't that a reminder as he feeds the disciples with this little breakfast on the shore? And yet there's 153 fish that they just brought in that's going to provide above and beyond. And in doing all that, he's reassuring Peter and restoring him and saying, I want to use you. I have a job for you and I will empower you to do that. Your service may be small. Your service may be big. Your service may be visible. It may be back in the background. It may just be in faithfully loving and leading your family as a husband and loving your husband as a, as a wife and being a mother to your children and nurturing and bringing your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It may be as a grandparent. It may be in your place of work where you're one of the only believers and you just shine your lights. You brighten the corner where you are. Whatever the task, how great or how small, God loves you and he wants to use you as his children. We may not have the high call of a Peter as an apostle to go forth and to preach like Peter did in Acts 1 through 12 and face the Sanhedrin and eventually go to martyrdom. As he will reference there in verse 18, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, when thou wast young, thou girdest thyself and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands and another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. He says, Peter, while you were young, you had a lot of self-confidence. You accomplished a lot of things with the strength that I had gifted you with. And you didn't necessarily recognize that and give glory to God for that. And you had a lot of zeal and a lot of self-confidence. But one day there's going to be those who will take you. And they are going to take you where you wouldn't probably go. And they're going to murder you. Essentially in verse 18, Jesus is prophesying of the martyrdom. As Peter would, we know from church tradition, he would be crucified, but he would not be crucified right side up because he didn't want to be crucified like his Savior Jesus. He was crucified upside down, according to church tradition. But verse 18 even speaks to Peter's future martyrdom. So we've seen the reassurance of Christ, of his presence, his power, his provision. We've seen the restoration of a believer and the Apostle Peter and how it speaks to us and to our own lives. But then finally, in verses 20 through 23, we see 
that Christ prevents rivalry. As much as Peter has grown, in verse 20, we see him turning and seeing the disciple whom Jesus loved following, which also leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? So we see Peter already, as he's restored, as he is called and he's told to follow me and feed my sheep, feed my lambs. We see Peter turning and just like we do, we look around and we see what everybody else is doing. And specifically, he sees John. And he says, well, what about him? You've said what's going to happen to me. Well, what about John? And Christ prevents some rivalry here. He told Peter, don't worry about John's future. He goes on to say in verse 22, Jesus saith unto him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. He repeats that command as he said in verse 19, follow me. He says, follow thou me in verse 22. He says, Peter, don't get sidetracked here. Don't so quickly get get your eyes diverted onto someone else. I have a job for John as well. I have a calling for him. John's going to do my will that I've called him to, but don't worry about him. And it's so easy to get our eyes on someone else. And he, he says there, he says, basically, don't worry about John. If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? To thee? Follow thou me. Then went this saying abroad among the brethren that that disciple should not die. Yet Jesus said not unto him, he shall not die. But if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? He's saying, John may live till I come again, but don't worry about that. If that's what I've given John to do, then that's, his will, that's my will for his life. That's not your will. That, that's not my will for your life. That's my will for his life. And we get so caught up sometimes on looking on others. And they're doing this and they're doing that. And sometimes it's even what other Christians are not doing for the Lord that keeps us from serving the Lord. Because we say, well, look at them. Why should I serve? Why should I be faithful? They're not faithful. They're not obedient. Yet they seem to be having so much success. Everything seems to be going so well. I look at their social media. I look at this and look at that, and they seem to be fine. But they're not. I know they're not living for the Lord, and we get our eyes focused in the wrong place for the wrong reasons. And we begin comparing ourselves among ourselves, and we're warned in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse number 12 that those who compare themselves among themselves are not wise. Too many Christians worry about what everybody else is doing. And then some won't even, some Christians don't even come to church because they're fearful of others or because of what others are doing or not doing. But we don't answer to the Lord for the life of someone else. We answer to the Lord for our own lives. We answer to the Lord for what we have done with what God has given us. And each believer is called to fulfill God's perfect and complete will for his or her life. And we will answer to God for our own life and how we have stewarded our life that God has given us. Not for someone else's life and how faithful or unfaithful they have been. We don't answer for someone else's gifts, talents, or opportunities. We answer for our own. And it's so easy to do in our comparison culture with all the places that we can look and we can see and the grass is always, it seems to be greener on the other side and someone else always seems to have it bigger, better, faster, stronger. But we don't know their hearts. 
And ultimately, we have to look and see, what does God have for me? What is the stewardship that he has given me? And I must be faithful in this stewardship. And that's what he's saying to Peter. Peter, I've just given you a little bit of a glimpse of your future and your calling, and I've given you a command to follow me. Don't worry about John. I have something for him. I have a job for him. I have a ministry for him. But you stay focused. I've restored you. I am restoring you. And I want you to go out and serve me with exactly what I have commanded and called you to do. Don't worry about John. And we see then Christ preventing even a rivalry among the disciples in the early days as they would go out and be the foundation of the church with Christ being the chief cornerstone and Peter and the apostles would preach the gospel and take it to the uttermost parts of the earth. And then we close this chapter in verses 24 and 25. This is the disciple which testifieth of these things. John speaking of himself. He says, I testify of these things and wrote these things and we know that his testimony is true. The testimony of Christ and the declaration by the inspiration of God, this record that God has breathed of the life of Christ that he has given me to write. This is the disciple which testifieth of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. The testimony of Christ, the testimony of John, who recorded by the inspiration of God, as God breathed these words to the apostle John and he wrote them down, this testimony is true. The validation, once again, of God's word being truth, of Jesus Christ being the way, the truth, and the life, of God's word, the Bible being the very word of God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Holy men of God moved, as, as holy men of God uh, wrote, as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That's the declaration again of verse 24. That's the point. And then verse 25, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself cannot contain the books that should be written. Amen. There was so much that could be written about Jesus Christ that there wouldn't be a library big enough in the entire world to contain all the books and all the writings that could be written about our Savior, Jesus Christ. He's the greatest man who ever lived. But he was more than a man. He was the God-man. God in the flesh. Incarnate God. And by the inspiration of God, God breathed the very words that God wanted us to have in this gospel, in his Bible, in his word. We have the canon of scripture, the 66 books, the full authority of God upon our life, inspired and true. Everything that we need for salvation, for living the Christian life is found right here in the word of God. He didn't leave something out that's missing that we're searching for. He's simply saying, if I wrote everything that I could possibly write about Jesus, the whole world wouldn't be able to contain it. Emphasizing the fact that we have everything we need right here in God's word for salvation and for living the Christian life. And Peter would say that later in one of his epistles. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things 
that pertain unto life, that's salvation, and to godliness, that's sanctification, that's living the Christian life. So we, like Peter, have a job to do. We have a calling, we have a ministry. It may not be as an apostle, it may not be as a pastor, as a, as a preacher, a missionary or evangelist. There are some who are called into that vocational ministry. But no matter what it is, God has given us a stewardship. And he says, follow me. Follow me. Obey. Fulfill the will that I have for you. And may we do that effectively to God's glory, even today and throughout this week and throughout the rest of our lives, until Christ comes again or until he calls us home. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this Gospel of John. Lord, I feel so inadequate in having presented it. But Lord, this is your truth revealed, preserved for us. That we might know you, as we just read in John 20 last week, that we might know Christ. He is the Son of God and believing, have life through his name. Lord, help us to be renewed in our love for you and our desire to serve you. Lord, as a believer, maybe you have dealt with us regarding our sin and our unfaithfulness. And Lord, you desire to restore us. You love us with an everlasting love. And nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And Lord, may we be renewed in our love for you to be faithful and to fulfill all the will of God, and to be good stewards of what you have given us. Do your work in our hearts, even as we sing this closing hymn, we pray in Jesus' name.